Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Several months ago, the shower in my master bathroom started dripping. And it started with a really small drip, like once every several seconds. So I didn't, I didn't worry about it too much, but the drip started becoming more drippy, if that's a word. I remember lying in bed one night, and you could hear it, drip, drip, drip. We had to close the bathroom door. It was so loud. And I remember my wife saying to me, she said, Micah, I think it's time we get that fixed. But I thought, you know, surely I can fix a dripping shower. So I did the best thing I know to do. I went on YouTube. And I watched a lot of videos, and I gathered all kinds of information. So first I went, I checked the shower head, and it seemed like it was fine. Then I decided I need to take the shower handles off and get at the shower valves. Quick note, uh, anytime you work on your shower, you should always remember to turn the water off to your house. Uh, because if you don't, you might pull a particular part that shoots you in the face, up your nose, and douses your clothes in water. Did not happen to me. But it might happen to someone else. Just, just FYI, okay? But I realized, I got in there, I realized I need to replace some things inside the shower handles, so I did what every man does, and they don't know what to do. I went to Home Depot, and I bought a bunch of stuff. And I came home, and I replaced everything, and I put it all back together. I stepped back, and guess what? Drip, drip, drip. So I was, I was baffled. I, I did everything right. I, I, watched, I watched the videos. I did just like the videos. I mean, I don't know what was going on, so I thought, surely this thing, it'll stop dripping on its own. <laughs> A few weeks later, it's still driven. And we had a steady stream at this point. And my wife said again, honey, we need to get that fixed. And so, alas, I had to call a plumber. And he was a great guy. He came out. He fixed it in 15 minutes flat. He was fantastic. I did have to pay him, but it was great. And guess what? The shower does not drip anymore. It's amazing. You know, I'm so grateful for plumbers and for all kinds of repairmen because most of the time when I face a problem in my home, I need help. Like I try my hardest to be a good husband and learn and fix things, but I'm not ashamed to admit I am pretty useless at home repairs. So my motto is now when something breaks, just pay the man, okay? Just pay the man, okay? Open up that wallet. I've learned, some of you are with me on that, <clears throat> I've learned there are many problems I cannot fix myself and for which I need the help of another, and that is exactly the point that we've established so far in our Roman series. Paul has clearly shown us that we have a problem. Our shower is dripping. <laughs> we are sinners who have turned from God and are now under his judgment, and so we try to fix this problem ourselves. We learn, we do, we attempt all kinds of things, but it doesn't work. No matter how moral or spiritual, how good we may be, we cannot fix our sin problem on our own. We need help, help from someone else. We need someone else to fix our leaking shower. We need a solution to this problem. And praise God, today we're going to see that he has provided that solution. He and he alone can fix our big problem, and we find the solution in the last part of Romans chapter 3. Let's read this together. Would you please stand? As we honor the reading of God's word. Romans 3 verses 21 through 31 says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Now, if you've been here with us on Sunday mornings, and you may remember that the Apostle Paul, he wrote this letter to the Roman church. And while he wanted to gain their support for his mission efforts, and he wanted to deal with a problem that was going on between Gentile and Jewish Christians in the church, he wrote this letter primarily to lay out the gospel. That word gospel literally means good news. It's, it's a message that Jesus saves. But in order to understand why the good news is so good, we said we've got to know what the bad news is and why it's so bad. So Paul, in making his argument for the gospel, he spent these first three chapters really driving home our need for a Savior. He's been hammering on this idea that all people, Jew and Gentile, are sinners under the wrath of God. All people are guilty of sin and deserve God's judgment, and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. He's, he's really driving this home, I mean, verse after verse after verse, and then, like a glass of water in the desert, we get Romans 3.21. Look at how this starts. He says, but now. Two words, but you know things are about to get good. But now means he's changing scenes, he's switching directions, he's turning the page. And, and that word but can be a word of great hope. I mean, especially in situations where something bad happens, think about it. Someone says, hey, your, your family was in an accident, but everyone's going to be okay. We lost the dog, but we found him down the street. I lost my job, but I just got a better offer. This is the kind of hopeful transition we see here. L listen to how this lands. You are a guilty sinner, but now. You deserve God's judgment, but now. There is nothing you can do to save yourself, but now. Man, this is a glorious passage. It's the solution. It's the answer we've all been waiting for. And if you were tired of me telling you every week that you're going to hell, we have finally reached <laughs> the good part, okay? And Paul gives us two parts to this solution. Here's the first part. Number one, we see God's provision for you. In this first paragraph, verses 21 through 26, we see God's plan to save his people laid out. And let me tell you, there's a lot here. I mean, we could spend a ton of time because this section is jam-packed with depth and richness. And we're going to try to squeeze out every drop the best we can. So let's take this piece by piece. Look at verse 21 first. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. There's that phrase again. We saw that in Romans 1.16, the thesis statement of the letter, that righteousness of God. 
Paul said the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith for faith. And we made clear that this concept does not just refer to the act of God being righteous and us not, but it refers to God's act of making sinners righteous. And here Paul says this this righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. You'll also remember the law refers to the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, the rules given to the Israelites. and, And we made clear that no one was able to perfectly keep God's rules. So what Paul's saying is that salvation does not come through the law. No one is going to be saved because they kept the rules or they were a good person. That wasn't the point of the Old Testament law. It was not given to Israel to save them from their sin. That's why they needed sacrifices. But as he says, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, they bear witness to God's plan to save. The Old Testament's been pointing us along all the way from Genesis to Malachi, pointing us to God's plan to save the message about Jesus. And we're going to see a lot more of this in chapter 4. But Paul's point here is that God's plan to save his people has been his plan all along. It didn't just happen when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. When the Israelites kept breaking the Ten Commandments from eternity past, from before time even began, God planned a way to be with his people. That's the gospel. Look at verse 22 and 23. Let's keep going. It says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If God does not save people through the law, then how does he do it? Well, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. Do you remember the chairs? I did the chair example that week. We had on one side God and the other side us, and we talked about how we're separated from God through sin. But there was the middle chair, which was Jesus, and we talked about through faith in him we're made right with God. That's the the point here, and Paul makes clear this is for anyone who believes. There's no distinction. Everybody has sinned, and everybody needs Jesus. That's the one thing that we all have in common. Look, we know our world has a lot of problems. I got a lot of problems. And at the core of each of those problems is our sin. That's what's wrong with me. That's what's wrong with you. And not only did we sin in the past, but we continually, right now, fall short of God's glory. As human beings, we were made to reflect God. We were made in his image to, to glorify him. And when we sin, we, we reject that purpose and we fall short of what we were made to do. We all have the same problem. We all need the same solution. And that's why God made a way. Look at verses 24 and 25. And are justified by his grace as a gift Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There's that really important word again. It's this word justified. It's this legal language. It's the act of declaring someone to be innocent and righteous. It's stamping the approval on them before God. I've heard pastors explain it like this. I think this is helpful. When I'm justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Did you catch that? To be justified means you just as if I'd never sinned. And let me uh, show you something this morning I brought with me to explain this uh, as a little a little better. Did you guys have one of these as a kid? Yeah. Um, now, kids, this is what we had before the iPad. Okay. This was our tablet. You had to make your own games. You had to make your own sound effects. If you wanted to watch a video, you had to draw it. Okay? 
But, you know, I used to love, I used to love having one of these as a kid, along with Stretch Armstrong and the little fighting robot things and all that. But I love this because I'm not very artistic. Like when I draw, I always mess up. But with the Etch-A-Sketch, when you mess up, you can start over. How does, how does that work? What do you do? Right? You just shake it, and everything goes away. The slate is blank, and you can start new. And I think this is a great picture of what it means to be justified. As we go through life, we draw our picture, and we mess up. We sin, and our picture just gets messier and messier. But when God justifies us, this is what he does. He shakes the etch-a-sketch. He cleans the slate. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. But wait, there's more. Being justified doesn't just mean that my sin is taken away. It doesn't mean we're somehow like neutral and we're starting over from scratch. To be justified also means just as if I'd always obeyed. Because not only does our etch-a-sketch get shaken and our picture gets wiped away, but God draws a new sketch in its place, and this one's perfect. We get the perfect record of Jesus. Jesus obeyed every rule. He obeyed every law. He had the perfect picture. Where we fall short of God's glory, Jesus was the glory of God in all its fullness. So when we're justified, not only is our sin taken away, but we're given the perfect righteousness of Christ. God sees us as his perfect sons and daughters. Just as if I never sinned, and just as if I'd always obeyed. And notice this justification comes by his grace as a gift. This is one of the hardest things for us to understand about the gospel. The concept of grace is radical and it's ridiculous. That's why we sing amazing grace. How can it be? Grace means that God did all of this by his own free choice, it means we didn't earn it, it it's a gift. God is not bound to save us. He didn't have to save us. Being good or being special or being important did not cause God to do these things. But he chose to do it by his grace. It's a free gift, not based on anything we've done. But just because God's grace is free to us doesn't mean it was cheap for God. It's said that grace is a free gift that costs everything. Because grace came about only through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, his, his death. That word redemption was often used in ancient times to describe freeing or liberating a prisoner or a slave. In the ancient world, to redeem or to free someone was to pay their ransom price and to purchase their freedom. And this is what God has done for us. We were slaves to sin. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, there was a great cost. There was a price to be made, and God made that payment on our behalf. And that payment was the death of his own son. Look again at verse 25. It says that God put Jesus forward. God chose to send his son on a rescue mission for his people. He didn't have to. He wasn't forced to. Can we just think about the difficulty of that for a second? Like I know that God the Father and God the Son, that's a mystery. God the Father did not birth God the Son, but they're two persons with the Holy Spirit, who's the third person of the Trinity, and it gets kind of confusing. They're one God, but they've existed together for all eternity. So can you imagine when God the Father sent God the Son to the earth? They'd been together for all eternity. 
and perfect love and perfect relationship and perfect fellowship. And of all the ways he could have saved his people, of all the plans that God could have drawn up, he didn't send an angel. He didn't send the new prophet. He didn't snap his fingers or work a miracle. No, he chose to send his own son. God put Jesus forward. And he didn't put him forward to be a great teacher or to be a great religious figure or just to help people learn how to be happy and nice to each other. God put Jesus forward to die. It was his will that he would be murdered and crushed. The cross was not some kind of terrible accident. It was not a surprise or a mistake. It was God's plan from the beginning. What in the world could motivate God to send his own son to die for sinful people like me? There's only one thing, and that's love. It's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is love on display. God putting forward his own son, Jesus, as a propitiation. Big word alert. Did you hear that? Big word. Listen, do you want to look smart? Do you want people to think you are a really good Christian? Learn to use this word, propitiation. Say that with me propitiation. Wow, you guys are good Christians. So when someone asks you what you learned at church, and you can tell them, I learned about propitiation, and they will be in awe of your holiness, okay? I'm, I'm kidding. But what does this word mean? I know I say this a lot, but this really is so important. This word propitiation, it means to turn away or to remove God's wrath against sin so that we can be forgiven. And this word, it has some really interesting connections in the original language of the Bible. i got to get kind of nerdy with you right here for a second. You may know the New Testament was written in Greek. And this word in the Greek is used for the Old Testament word that we translate mercy seat. Now, what is the mercy seat? Think back with me to the Old Testament. Do you remember the tabernacle and the temple? This is where Israel went to worship God, and inside of this place there was a room called the Holy of Holies. And that's where they placed the Ark of the Covenant. And man, this was a special place. This was where God's presence dwelled. It was like heaven on earth. In fact, the exact spot where God's glory dwelled in all its fullness was on top of the Ark of the Covenant, on the cover of the Ark, which they called the Mercy Seat. And this place was so holy, you couldn't go in there. You walked in there, you would die. But one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into that very room and he would take with him the blood from an animal sacrifice. The animal that was sacrificed took the place of God's people. So rather than the people dying for their sin, the animal died instead. And the priest would take some of that blood and he would go into the Holy of Holies one day a year on the Day of Atonement before all the people and he would sprinkle some of that blood on the mercy seat. And this would remove God's wrath from their sin and bring forgiveness to the nation. Do you see the connection that Paul is now making with this word. I mean, these people, especially these Jewish Christians who knew this stuff, this would have been firing off in their heads. They would have realized that Jesus is the fulfillment of the mercy seat. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he took our place. He took our sin as a sacrifice. So through him, through his blood being sprinkled, we have forgiveness of sin and the wrath of God is taken away. 
Except unlike the old mercy seat, we didn't have to do this every year. Jesus only had to die once. His sacrifice was perfect. He took away all sins, past, present, and future in one death, and he turned away God's wrath from us. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that God does not have wrath towards me. We've seen this a lot in Romans already. Listen to these verses. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That's me. Romans 2.5, you were storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That should be me. Romans 2.8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, that's me, there will be wrath and fury. See, God's wrath is his holy and fair response to, to sin and evil. God has wrath because he loves his creation. It's his way of dealing with all that's wrong in the world. And we said, you know, this is a good thing. We want a God who's fair and just. It's just that because of our sin, we are under God's wrath. We deserve his wrath. But now Jesus has taken our wrath, God's wrath, in our place. As a propitiation, by his blood, Jesus died on the cross and God poured out all of his wrath on all of sin for all time as a judgment on Jesus instead of us. And this is why the cross is such a big deal. Because on the cross, Jesus became our propitiation, our mercy seat. He took our sin. He absorbed our wrath and has given us forgiveness. Let's keep going in verses 25 and 26. He says this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul tells us God did all of this to show his righteousness. And he brings up God passing over former sins. What's that about? Well, he's referring to the sins that were committed before Jesus. What about all those people in the Old Testament who lived and died before Jesus ever came to the earth? What about their sins? How were they saved? Well, there's a common misconception that people in the Old Testament were saved differently than we are. Because they didn't have Jesus, well, they must have been saved by doing good works, right? That's not true. We're going to talk more about this in Romans 4, but people in the Old Testament were saved in the same way we are. They were saved by Jesus. While they didn't know him fully like we do, they were able to, say, to, to be saved and to trust in God's coming promise. So God passed over their sins. He had patience with them. Patience with them. And he allowed people to continue living even though they sinned and they had earned his judgment because he was going to deal with it at the cross. And that's what he did. We see his righteousness today clearly. We see now that God is both just and the justifier. In other words, God is able to uphold two things that seem to contradict. We said that God is just and fair and he's got to deal with sin. And yet we also said that God loves and forgives sinners. How can this be? What's well, all because of Jesus and the cross? God was just because he did pay for sins. He just paid for them on Jesus. That's what he did. He punished him instead of us. So he is fully just and fair. Because he poured out his wrath on Jesus, now he's free to justify sinners like me. Do you see how the cross, it was this perfect solution. It's, it's genius. God's justice and love perfectly balanced. God's holiness and mercy perfectly upheld. God able to be just and the justifier. God dealt 
with the big problem. He saved us in the process, and he gave us a relationship with him. That is God's provision for you. It's the first part, and here's the second part to the solution. It's this, your response to God. I've got to make this quick. But in light of all that God has done, we must respond to this message. And that's what this second paragraph is all about. Look at verses 27 and 28. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So if God is the one who provided salvation for us, if he's the one who revealed his righteousness, if he's the one who justifies us by his grace, if he's the one that sent his own son to die, then what reason do we have to boast? What did we do? Nothing. We have nothing to be proud of in ourselves. God gets the glory for our salvation. And here's the only thing we can do. Here's the only way we can respond. It's this. It's faith. It's faith. That's it. We're not justified by any work of the law. In other words, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We're justified by faith, by simply trusting in Jesus to save us. And Paul affirms this again in these last verses, last part, verses 29 through 31. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Remember, Paul wrote to Jews and Gentiles, and he already said both groups have the same problem. Now he said they're both saved in the same way. It's faith in Jesus. And he closes with this question about how faith relates to the law. And we're going to cover that in more depth in weeks to come. But his point here is very clear. Listen, faith alone is the only valid response to the gospel. You remember a few weeks ago I talked about the Reformation and how Martin Luther sparked this huge movement in the church by studying the book of Romans. Well, out of the Reformation came some of these old Christian mottos. And in Latin, one of those is sola fide. It means faith alone. And that was at the heart of what caused Martin Luther to break away from the Roman Catholic Church. Because the, the Catholic Church taught, and they still teach today, that we're justified by faith plus some other stuff. But Martin Luther said no. This is not what Paul teaches in Romans. It's faith and faith alone that justifies us. And Luther felt so strongly about this that it's claimed, he said, justification by faith alone is the article by which the church stands or falls. It's that important. Faith alone in Jesus alone is what makes you a Christian. It's what saves you, what justifies you, period. There is no other way to be saved. There's no other way to go to heaven when you die. And this makes sense if you think about it because we said salvation is a free gift by God's grace. A gift cannot be earned or then it's not a gift. I was reminded of this recently uh, when one of our very kind church members gave me for Pastor Appreciation Month a Culver's gift card. They are now my favorite church member because they know the way to my heart. It's burgers and custard. 
But when I opened the card and I saw in there, of course, I read the note first. Then I saw the gift card. When I saw this, I did not call them and offer to pay them for the gift card. I did not offer to come to their house and mow their lawn. I did not declare that I was in their debt. No, when I saw that I had received a gift, I had two options. I could receive it or I could reject it. And it was Culver's. So obviously I received it with thanksgiving to the Lord. <laughs> because, and I spent it already. It's great. But we, we must respond in the same way today. Look, you have heard what God has done for you in Christ. You've seen for yourself the solution he's provided to your problem. So what will you do with this gift? Will you receive it in faith? Will you believe and trust in Jesus to save you? Or will you throw it in the trash and walk away? You have that choice today. And this choice may not come again tomorrow. But what about you, Christian? You've placed your faith in Jesus. How will you respond today? We just nod your head and say, oh, that's, that's nice. That's great. Or will you walk and live in faith? Will you stop giving, uh, giving things to your flesh and living in your, fe- in your flesh and walking in faith? And will you take this message, this good news that Jesus saves to the world? And that's our calling, telling people that God has a solution for all the problems we see. God has provided our way out. If we'll just put our faith in Jesus, we will be saved. That's the good news of the gospel, and that's what makes the good news so good. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.